Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast I call Paint Stories. I'm Mark Golden, co-founder of Golden Artist Colors with my father and mother, Sam and Adele Golden, and my wife, Barbara. Once again, I'm joined by my good friend, Ronnie Landfield. It was simply impossible to capture all of Ronnie's over 50 years of making art and his many connections in the art world. So thank you, Ronnie, for allowing me to continue with your paint stories. When we last spoke, we were talking about the tragedy of losing your paint studio and having to begin again in Manhattan. Remember what year was that? That was in February of 1966. I went to the movies, came back, and discovered that the entire building had burned down, pretty much. Were you able to save any of the artwork, or was everything well, gone? I, I probably was able to save many works on paper, but my important paintings were, were destroyed. They were all gone. I had just started a series of 15 paintings, nine feet high, six feet wide, with acrylic paint. I had learned how and what it was that I wanted to do. I had done a few big paintings. I did two of the first series paintings. What they were going to be was an homage, what I had learned in California, what I had learned by listening to Odetta and the Beatles and Dylan <laughs> and all these insights I had, and they were going to be blank. And I wanted the acrylic paint to really function in ways that I had never been able to, to use it before. I wanted to make large, big areas. They were going to be like the open void. So it was going to be these four colors, black to symbolize the unknown, pale blue-green to symbolize an endless space, surrounded by a pale tan to represent the earth, and bright yellow to represent light. I was working at these sketches, at these works on paper, to make this entire series of paintings. And the building burned down. Uh, as I mentioned, my friend Dan Christensen and Dave Wagner, another artist, both of whom I knew in Kansas City, offered to save and store whatever it was that Michael Steiner and I could rescue from the loft. I was living on East 11th Street with Jenny, and I was able to get a lot of my papers, a lot of my poetry and writing to the apartment on 11th Street. What, where did you finally set up studio? I didn't have the wherewithal at that moment in time. My money was gone. I really was stuck after about two weeks after the fire. I had by that time made probably a hundred drawings. I was going like a maniac. I was doing these drawings on vellum paper drawing after drawing. That's what I was doing all day long. I was making these works on paper. Jenny thought I was crazy. She would go to work and come back and I'd still be drawing. And one day I, I was thinking about this book that was one of my favorite books called Conversations with Artists by Selden Rodman. In that book, there is a kind of dialogue between Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. Now, all I knew about Philip Johnson was what I was learning in the book and the fact that I used to see his name on the wall at the Museum of Modern Art. Reading in the book, I learned that Philip Johnson was an art collector. And so I looked Philip Johnson up in the phone book. He was listed, and I called him. 
a woman answered the phone and said, who are you? And I told her I'm Ronnie Lanfield, a 19 year old artist. I'm sure he doesn't know me, but my building burned down and I need help. And she said, well, why don't you write him a letter? So I thought to myself, okay. And I wrote a letter. A lot of uh, nerve, Ronnie, to do this as a 19-year-old. I didn't know what would happen. I mailed it. A couple of days later, I get a call from Philip Johnson's office saying, Mr. Johnson, we'll meet you Thursday at 10 o'clock. Whoa. Now, I put all my drawings in a book and put on the only suit that I owned. And I went to the meeting. I get to the cigarettes building. I walked in. I said, I have a meeting with Mr. Philip Johnson. They said, top floor. So I went up to the top floor. It was like, you know, higher in New York City than I'd ever been. I get there. I, the receptionist says, what can I do for you? And I said, I have a meeting with Mr. Johnson. They escorted me into a boardroom. And I sat down at the end of a table. And there were these Giacometti sculptures made out of tinfoil. I was like, whoa. Philip Johnson came in. And he sat down at the other end of the table. He said, so young man, what can I do for you? He said, what, what do you have? And I said, these are my drawings. And I showed him my drawings. And he, and he said, well, what do you want from me? He said, I'm not going to support you. And I told him the story. I told him I had traveled. I went to California. I went to school. I was doing these paintings. And I was really into the series of paintings. And the uh, studio burned down. And Johnson said, now look, I'm not going to support you. Do you have a job? I said, no. He said, why aren't you in school? I said, school sucks. I just want to make art. And Johnson said, well, it's great that you want to make art, but you got to support yourself. He said, I'll tell you what, when you make some of this art, you come back and show them to me. Good luck. That was pretty generous. What made you think that this was going to be a connection that was going to work, Ronnie? He inspired me. Right. I was enormously inspired. He made me feel, I love my parents. I love my friends. He made me feel that the idea that I wanted to be an artist, that I wanted to actually paint and make art, he made me feel like that was okay. Everyone else I'd ever met, like, you know, I love my mother. She would help me, but she would say to me, you're going to get a job? Or my friends, we were always competitive. Oh, you're doing that. Well, look at what I'm doing. Here was this person who was obviously in the top of the world. He was making me feel as though it was terrific that I was, that I was an artist. I left feeling terrific, feeling like, wow. I was just on the top floor of the Seagrams building talking to the guy that designed the building with Mies van der Rohe. Yes, he's a world-famous guy, and it's okay. I knew... In the Fuller Building on 57th Street, I'd heard that they were looking for somebody to work in their advertising agency. So from the Seagrass Building on Park and 52nd, I walked up to 57th and Madison. I went into the building. It's good that you had your suit on still. I did. I had my suit on. I got to the Diener House of Greenthal Agency. I walked in. The receptionist said, can I help you? I said, well, I have an appointment with the vice president, which I didn't have. She ushered me into his office. He wasn't there yet. I had my book of drawings with me. And he came in, and I had noticed behind his desk, 
he had these little postcards of Richard Diebenkorn, Elmer Bischoff, and Nathan Oliveira. And as soon as he came in, I said, I know those guys, which was true. I had, <laughs> I had actually banged on the door of Nathan Oliveira's studio, and I introduced myself to him. I told him how much I admired his work. I did the same with Elmer Bischoff. At the end of the year in 65, I was doing these hard edge paintings because they gave me a show in the lobby of the school. This is May. I'm about to quit the school, go back to New York. I'm sitting in, by the fountain in the entrance to the San Francisco Art Institute and Richard Diebenkorn walks by. I gave him a big smile. Mm -hmm. He smiled back. I think I extended my hand. He shook my hand. He said, I'm Richard Diebenkorn. And I certainly knew that. Mm -hmm. And I said, hi, I'm Ronnie Landfield. And it's my show of paintings around the, the lobby. And so he went and looked at all of my paintings. He came back and he, he complimented me. He said, terrific. I said to him, pardon my English, why in the fuck are you a figure painter? <laughs> I actually said that to him. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, you're right, kid. Now, that was 1960. I've told people this story. It's true. This is 1965. And Richard continued doing figurative paintings one more year. I mean, he had to wind it up. 1966, last year, Richard's figure paintings. 1967, he starts the Ocean Park paintings. Right. It's funny. As you say these stories, it must have been a very a disarming way that you shared that kind of statement with folks for them not to want to swing at you. Yeah, well, maybe they should have, but they didn't. <laughs> and in fact, it worked. I don't think he had any animosity towards mm -hmm. me because I think... I think we were right on the same track. If you look at the Ocean Park paintings, which are amongst, I think, the greatest paintings produced, and certainly in 20th century art, Diebenkorn was underrated by the New York critics. All of these meetings, Ronnie, <laughs> knocking on artists' doors. So to knock on Philip Johnson's door was not particularly unique to you in terms of your willingness I, to- I, I guess so. In retrospect, yes. I'm sorry that I took you on this other path, but I'm really grateful that we did. That was a great uh, story. Yeah. I mean, you know, so the vice president of this advertising agency, Ed, Ed Ruskin, I think his name was, and he gives me a job. <laughs> so now I, I meet Philip Johnson an hour later, an hour and a half later, I got a job. I got a full-time job working in an advertising agency, 57th Street. Your mom would be very proud of you. She was, I told her. I get home, Jenny's happy, I got a job, man, now all I need is a place to paint. I can maybe begin to save, save up some money. A week or so later, I get a call from Dan Christensen. Sadly, Dave Wagner's dad died. He had to help his family, and Dan needed somebody to pay the rent. He had his, they had this great place on Great Jones Street, you know it. And Dan asked me if I needed a place. I said, absolutely, man. So yes, I had a job. I could now help with the rent. And I moved. I hired my carpenter to make me 15. He made me 18 nine-foot by six-foot stretchers. I got the canvas. Now I had a new studio. I'm going to do the 15 paintings. I learned how to thin out the acrylic paint. So you were using liquid I'm using Liquitex. 
I'm getting a lot of map media. And so I had coffee cans filled. I got a lot of gesso. And I was working full-time on 57th Street and full-time on Gray Jones Street. What kind of like crazy. I was 19 years old. I didn't have any studio assistants. So I'd stretch canvas, gesso it, wake up in the morning, go to work late, come back late. And I kind of got into a rhythm. The key to the series was I didn't want any brush strokes. I wanted them to be perfect. And these were big. And I finished a series of 15 paintings. It was probably early summer of 1966. Mm -hmm. And I made three more. Now, Dan said to me, Ronnie, when you finished that series, what did you expect to happen? That it would be like the world would end? <laughs> because in a weird way, yeah, I didn't know. The last painting is just the void. I said to Dan, you're right, man. It's like, obviously, I've got to keep going. And I made some 50 by 60 inch paintings. I made some two by three inch paintings. I got all these photographs together. I contacted Philip Johnson and he gave me another point. I went up to the top floor of the Seagram's building with pictures of the paintings. At this point, you're very familiar with the top floor of the Seagram building. Yeah. <laughs> he looked at the stuff and he says, prolific little bastard, aren't you? <laughs> and I told him I had a job. So you went with the photographs of, of the work? And he says, I'll take that one. And what, which one was this? This was one of the three. I suggested that the yellow one was the best one. He said, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. And he gave me a check for $300. Rent was 100 bucks a month. And I was ecstatic. I went to work. They did a photostat of the check, which I have in the studio. When I got down to Great Jones Street, Dan and Jenny were hanging out the windows and I was waving the check at Because <laughs> this worked. So everybody now is writing letters to Philip Johnson, hoping that they... Oh, they should, yeah, obviously, because <laughs> it worked. And now it's in the collection of Philip Johnson. I went uptown and I had my drawings with me. God only knows why. I went into the Castelli Gallery to see a show. Might have been a Stella show or it might have been a Warhol show. And Ivan Karp said to me, hey, kid, what do you got under your arm? And I said, are my drawings? He said, well, show them to me. So I showed him the drawings. And they were very Judd-like. And Ivan says, hey, Donald. And Donald Judd came over. I, I turned red. Mm -hmm. He looked at my drawings. They laughed. And Ivan said to me, here's a phone number. I want you to call her. She's working at the Bianchini Gallery. Her name is Dorothy Hertzka. And she's looking for some young artists. So I went outside to 77th Street to the phone booth, called the number. Dorothy Hertzka answered the phone. I said, I just got your number from Ivan Karp. And she said, well, I'm in the Bianchini Gallery I'm on 57th Street. I knew it was across from the Green Gallery. She said, why don't you come over? So I went down to 57th Street. I, I met Dorothy Hertzka. There might have been a, a Ryman show up, as I remember, but nobody had ever heard of Ryman at that point. <laughs> she said to me, can I come to your studio and see your paintings? I said, sure. And Dorothy came and she saw my series paintings and she saw these other paintings. I had done one for Philip. And she said, how about, Ronnie, if you curate a show for being Keeney Gallery of you and your friends, and we'll do it like in March of 67. 
Well, what an exciting opportunity. Yeah. So who did you invite? Well, so I invited, invited Ken Scholl and I invited Dan Christensen and myself. Dorothy added Peter Gorfain to the show and we curated the show. In the meantime, I left Great Jones Street. My friend Peter Reginato had come right. to New York. Mm -hmm. I had talked him into quitting school. Peter came. And You're really a bad influence, Ronnie. Absolutely. Awful. <laughs> and Peter Reginato had come with another classmate of ours, this guy, Michael Heiser. They found 60 Green Street. There's a huge loft. And Peter is still living there. At the end of the year, in January 1967, I moved all of my stuff to Peter's place. Sort of said to me, you can paint in the studio. He was very generous. And Heiser had already left. He was living out, out in New Mexico or in Nevada doing uh, earthworks. And I started painting again. This time, the series was behind me. What I wanted to do was make these big, open, void paintings. And I made this 9 by 12 foot painting with rollers. So now I'm pushing the acrylic paint in a new direction. I'm using it thicker, and I'm still cutting it with matte medium. Right. I guess I'm still gessoing and I'm painting stretched, but I'm making these big stretchers, my nine by 12 feet. Again, I'm, I don't want brush strokes. So now I'm 20 years old. We did the show. I had no idea what would come of it. And we all got letters inviting us to be in the Whitney annual. What a great so outcome from the show. That was, to me, that was the outcome. I was now going to be in a Whitney museum. So was Peter, Peter Gorfain. So was Peter Young got an invite as well. And so was Dan. And so was Ken Scholl. We were all invited to be in the 1967 Whitney annual. My problem, though, was I had nowhere to paint. So, you know, I, I mean, I was at Reginato's, but I, I didn't want to be there anymore. I was imposing on my friend. Right. I had sold a painting to Robert Skull. The yellow painting that I wanted to give to Philip Johnson, interesting story with that. Before I left Great Jones Street, I realized that the tan painting was better. And I went and saw him again. And I told him, I think that the yellow painting is good, but the tan painting is the one. And he said, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and he gave me a check for $400. I said, well, you'd already gave me, you gave me three. He said, Ronnie, you have to learn. You have to be well paid for your work. And the tan painting is at the Sheldon Museum in Nebraska. It went from the collection of Philip Johnson to the Sheldon Museum. I'm in this collection. I'm in a museum. Peter Young called me up. This is in the summer of 1967. And he told me there's an opening in his building at 94 Bowery. The top floor is empty. I moved. Now I got a place to work. And I got to do a painting for the Whitney. Deadline is coming up, November. And I start making these eight-foot square paintings. But I want to get away from minimalism. I have come to the conclusion that painting's not dead. That those of us who, who are now painters, it's in our hands. We have to make them real. We have to make them matter. We have to make them not abstract expressionists. We have to find our own voice. So I start doing this dark blue painting. It's eight feet square. I'm working stretched. 
I'm using rollers and it's dark. I'm getting surface, but it's very subtle. And, and now I'm going to put some borders on it and I cut them so that they don't go all across. And then I put some borders on the bottom, only I just take paint, smear it right out of the tube. So they're painterly, but they're hard edge. They were expressive. They were sort of understanding of minimalism, but they were expressionistic. Mm -hmm. And I call this one painting, which came right out of this long poem I had written in Berkeley called The Myth, The Howl of Terror. And I showed it at the Whitney. I'm thinking that those of us who are painting, we have to figure out a way to, to change history, to change painting. And because there's all these guys going before us and the Judd is saying painting is dead and it's all this minimal stuff. And the more minimal you get, you get the blank. And I wanted painters to paint. I wanted to find and invent a new kind of painterly painting at the Whitney. I looked across the room and there was this green painting with big ellipses on it. And I realized that's a Larry Poons. I knew Poons's dot paintings. I knew his dot circle paintings. I had seen his shows at Green Gallery. And this was a painterly Poons. This was a painting that was actually expressive to me in the same way as what I was trying to say about painting. About a week or two later after the opening, I went into the Longview Country Club. Longview Country Club was across the street from Max's, 19th Street and Park Avenue South, owned by Mickey Ruskin. Mickey was trying to get all of us artists across the street so he can get all the musicians into Max's. So he opened up this second bar across the street. He had a big Peter Reginato sculpture and a Frosty Myers. And a lot of us artists would go and hang out. I walked in there one day and it was empty except for a couple of people sitting at the bar and Larry Poons was sitting. Larry looks at me, smiles, and says, hi, I'm Larry Poons. And I said, hi, I'm Ronnie Lanfield. I'm the guy that's got the painting opposite yours at the Whitney. And Larry sort of says, why don't you come to my studio? So I said, okay, let's go. I, we might've left or he, I might've gone the next day to Poons' studio, he was living on Worth Street. So we, we go up and we see these paintings. And I think it was the ground floor studio or the second one flight up. And they were unbelievably gorgeous paintings. They were just gorgeous. There was this like 18 foot orange painting with these big ellipses on them. There was uh, a yellow, I think there was a yellow one, but they were just like, wow. I mean, it was obviously, he was working out of the one at the Whitney. Mm -hmm. A, I was a little bit like blown away because at that time, for me to make a painting like The Howl of Terror and the other ones that I did like The Howl of Terror, it was an event. I didn't have that much money. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that much support. I didn't have a dealer and I wasn't selling anything really. It was a, a real difficult event. I used to have to go to Nettie's and buy the quartz of paint that, that I knew I was going to do a blue painting. And man, here's Larry. He's got all these gallons of paint in his studio. And he's working on this dark purple painting against the painting wall. It's 17 feet. And I say to Larry, God only knows, the trouble with you, Poons, is you always do the same painting over and over again. 
And he looks at me and says, what? Like, what? I said, you just, you do the same painting over and over again. You do one color and then you put your dots on them. Or in this case now, you're doing your ellipses. That's what you do. You do one same painting over and over, only different colors. And he looks at me like, he walks over, he grabs a big can of green paint. He walks over to this, like I said, stunning purple painting. And he takes the green paint and slams it all over this purple painting. I was like, what? And he looks at me and, he, and this paint is dribbling down. And he says, you're on to something, kid. <laughs> and Larry never looked back. That was the beginning. But it's, again, it's another story of, I can't imagine that you share these things without it being particularly disarming in the way that you do it. Otherwise. <laughs> you should shoot me, right? <laughs> no, don't you? This is what happened. Now, Larry was preparing, which turned out to be his last show at Costelli. And one of the paintings in the show was one of these new paintings with kind of like a solid color poons with the ellipses and clouds splashed on top. Mm -hmm. And that was his last show at Costelli. That's a great story. And it was also the beginning of Larry making these elephant skin paintings. Now, at that point, we were friends. And um, Larry got me to teach his class at Bennington. So I used to go up, so I'm like 21 years old, teaching in Bennington. But at any rate, Larry would come to my studio. And I showed him my paintings. And Larry says to me, the trouble with you, Landfield, is you try to do a, a masterpiece whenever you paint. He says to me, I'm a musician, and Larry used to play his, his guitar. He says to me, you're not spontaneous. Your paintings are not in the moment. You have to plan it. And then you, you've got to go back to your old idea. You're not in the moment. You're not working from the instant you want to work. And I realized that it probably took maybe the year of 68 to realize he was right. And the way that I changed, I radically changed. And I was influenced by Larry, because at that point, he was doing his thick stuff on the floor. I put a big piece of canvas on the floor, and I took the paint that I had, and I started mixing it with water, and I started making stain paintings on the floor. I knew it came out of Pollock. And at that point, I needed the paint to function better. I mean, I could roll it out. I couldn't really get it to do anything. I didn't know how. I might have talked to Ken Noland, and I knew Ken and Jules because I would go up to Bennington. Right. And sometimes if I needed a place to stay, Ken was very generous. He always had an extra room, and I would stay there. And I, I knew his studio. I'd go over to his studio. He had this incredible place. It was Robert Frost's house. Mm -hmm. Ken told me about this stuff called water tension breaker that he used that he'd mix with the paint and would go into the surface of the canvas. And it just made a lot of sense to me. The more I tried getting this water paint to work and the more I realized I, I couldn't really do very much with it. And I mentioned this, probably mentioned this to Larry and Larry said, call Lenny. And Larry gave me the number of Lenny Bocor. 
That's fabulous. Now I want to make better acrylic paints. And Aquatech was this thick body paint. Now Larry was using it, but I was sort of like afraid of it because I would have to break it down, break it down, break it down. And for all the border paintings I had done, and Halaterra and all those paintings, I was using Liquitex, um, you know, surface coat after coat after coat. Now I wanted something else. I wanted something different. I called Lenny. And as I remember, I was invited up to 52nd Street. And I went. And I met your dad. I met Sam Golden. And I met Lenny Rocour. And they were incredibly generous. You pick out the colors you want. And we want you to try the acrylic paint. And I gave them little paintings in exchange. They gave me gallons and gallons and gallons of Aquatech. And we talked and I told them what I was needing to do. And I learned a little bit about the history of water tension break from Sam. And Sam clearly had invented this stuff that would enable this paint to enter into the fabric of the canvas. Right. I think one of the the real joys of Leonard and Sam were to have artists come and visit their shop and that conversation. It was, yeah, they were at a business, but it was more so being connected to the community of artists. So you being there was just as much of a pleasure for them as, as it might have been for you. So did you visit the shop often? I remember having a meeting with Lenny in his office, and then I remember going with Sam down to see the paint on 52nd Street. It was always, I was learning stuff about the paint that I didn't know before. And I would see like one room after the next filled with paint and paint and paint. Around that time, Poons and I became really good friends. We would talk probably almost every day. My friend Peter Young at that point was beginning to get more and more successful. He was in a lot of good shows. And Peter got invited to have a show in Los Angeles at the Nick Wilder Gallery. Nick Wilder Gallery was like the hip, slick, cool gallery. Not only did Ron Davis show there, but all the color field people showed there, all the pop artists showed there. It was like the best gallery for painting in LA. My friend Peter Young was having a show there. Where did you meet uh, Ron Davis? Ron Davis was graduating from the San Francisco Art Institute the year I joined. And he was like the best hard-edged painter I'd ever met. And his paintings were so far beyond mine, technically. I mean, I was doing hard-edged painting. I was 17, 18 years old. Ron was 10 years older than me. And his work was extremely accomplished. And by 66, he had gone down to LA and he was showing at Castelli. He was doing these uh, very uh, sophisticated polyurethane works. These like surfboard pieces. Yeah. I mean, they were really kind of out there, uh, way beyond me, technically. So Peter Young comes back from his show in Los Angeles. He said, Ronnie, I met this guy in, in LA. He's showing with Nick Wilder and you ought to meet him. His work is, remind me of your work. And he was a guy named Bill Pettit. And I actually knew some of Bill's work he was showing at this gallery uptown. So in January of 1969, I flew out to Los Angeles. 
Now, I had just sold a couple of paintings to David Whitney. David Whitney was living with Philip Johnson. Mm -hmm. And David came to my studio, bought two huge paintings of mine. So I went to L.A. I was staying with an old friend. And I called Bill Pettit. He invited me to come to his studio. And I saw these big stain paintings, acrylic stain paintings. And Ron Davis came over. They were good friends. And David Whitney showed up. And Nick Wilder showed up. We all wound up talking and talking and talking. We went out to Chinatown. David wound up buying 13 paintings of Bill's. And uh, Ron invited me to a studio. I went the next day. And I saw these, these masterpieces. I mean, what Ron Davis did in 1969 was, it was the embodiment of everything I was trying to do and everything I was trying to say, only they weren't paint. They were like, you said, surfboards. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were, they were spatial, they were expressive, but they were perfect. You know, it was amazing. I was trying to make painterly new again, and Ron was doing it, Bill was doing it in his way, I was trying to find my way. So I was really happy I was there. And I said to Bill, what are you doing in LA? You got to come to New York, man. What are you kidding? They don't like you here in LA. I you know, Bruce Nauman was about to be discovered by Nick Wilder and everything was kind of like LA art. And I said to Bill, come to New York, man. In the meantime, Rosa Esmond, who was a dealer, had invited Bill me, Bryce Martin, David Dial, and uh, six or seven other guys, Ken Shaw, to be in a portfolio called the New York Ten. And we were all in the process of making a print for Rosa for her portfolio. And Bill decided to do it in New York. Probably January, February of 69, Bill comes to New York. And we started hanging out. He would come to my loft and work on his print. I was telling him, man, you should move to New York City. I introduced him to my downstairs neighbors, Peter Young, and at that point, Larry Stafford. And Larry Stafford was this guy from Texas whose father got really angry at him because Larry was, you know, he was living on the Bowery and raising his grandson on the Bowery. <laughs> and his dad got really mad at him. So Stafford drove up to Norwich, New York, bought a house and a bunch of acres of land and did move out of New York City up to Norwich. I went to visit Stafford because Stafford used to like to play electric guitar. I went up there with Poons, Chamberlain, and Neil Williams. We all drove up and Poons, Chamberlain, and Stafford played for hours and hours. They had a great time. Mm -hmm. What a group. Bill would hang out with me when he first came to New York. He met your dad. He met mm -hmm. Lenny. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of the great places to go, especially if you were a painter. And, and I introduced him to Stafford. At that time, Stafford hadn't left yet. Told him about it, Norwich. And finally, Bill and Jerry, I guess Jerry must have come to New York, drove up to see Larry Stafford's place. And they bought a house. And they bought 100 acres of land. Now Bill has his place. He's really proud of it. Because after all, David Whitney had bought 13 paintings and Bill had some capital. See, so he bought like 100 acres of land and a house. And, and he was into fishing. Larry is into fishing. 
and Larry and Bill and your dad went on a fishing trip up to Canada. Bill told your dad about this house that he just bought. So they wound up with a real estate agent looking for property and uh, wound up buying a hundred something acres in an old farmhouse. And uh, that's been the, the birthplace of Golden Artist Colors. And we, we knew that your dad was going to retire. And my understanding was he was going to Florida. Mm-hmm. He was going to retire. Bought a place in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And, and so I was surprised that he bought the house upstate. We understood that your dad was retired and I was getting stuff from Lenny. I was using Aquatech. That was the way everybody was functioning. Mm-hmm. Bill eventually says to me, hey, you got me to move to New York, Ronnie. I found this building on Desbrasa Street that's empty. It's a six-story building. Why don't you move out of the Bowery and move to this building? We'll each have two lofts apiece. I'm going to take the two top floors. I said, great, I'll take the two ground floors. And I talked Ken Scholl into taking the two middle floors. And we rented this building, one below Canal Street, six-story building, in what's now called Tribeca, $750 a month for the whole building. So Bill's beautiful two lofts where he had a great view of the Hudson River. My huge two lofts, which had high ceilings, 14-foot ceilings, $250 a month. And I I was there for 43 years. Mm -hmm. By 1979, inflation went through the roof and real estate prices went through the roof. We we signed another 10-year lease. We went from $750 a month for the whole building to $900 a month each of us. Right. Every year would go up. So when I first met you, Ronnie, it was 1980 and visiting the law. Right after we signed that lease, you, you and your dad came to yeah. visit. What I was hearing was, if we make paint, would you guys be interested in using it? Mm-hmm. And I had complete, absolute faith in your father. I'm not sure what brought him to do this thing. He's 66 years old. He had the money from the sale of Bocor, so there was no reason for him to actually do this, other than he loved the idea of being connected to you folks. I didn't realize that was the generative thing for for Dad, being part of this art world and carelessly being able to paint with you guys. The other part of it, Mark, is as we get older, we realize that work keeps us young. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine a life where you reach a point like 65, 66, no more work. Mm-hmm. I, my mom really recognized that he was getting old and he had nothing that was really getting him up every day and getting charged and excited. And the day and that, he was brilliant at yeah, the day the paint started coming off the mill, the guy, he still had a cigar in his mouth and his eyes lit up and you could say that was the day the company was successful. We had no sales, no business, nothing. And, uh, but you knew that it was going to be a success because he was so uh, excited about giving this thing a start. And then it was about going to studios. I don't know. I don't think you realize how exciting it was to go into your studio and the buckets and the buckets of paint (laughs) that were sitting there. It was a pretty incredible experience. But I remember being called by a conservator who was working at the Museum of Modern Art. And this would probably have been in 1989. 
And the museum owns a painting of mine, nine by 14 feet. It was in my first one man show called Diamond Lake. Philip gave it to the Museum of Modern Art in 1972. I saw it in the lobby of the museum. I mean, it made me very proud to have a nine by 14 foot painting hanging in the lobby of the Modern And then I hadn't seen it again for many, many, many years. And here it was, 1989, conservatory. Is it Carol Stringari? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it was Carol. Called me up and she wanted me to come in and look at Diamond Lake and give her my best assessment of whether or not the painting had changed in any way. And it looked to me, it looked the same. To me, it looks like the last time I saw it. One of the exciting things about that whole study that Carol was responsible for, it was the first time that someone was comparing acrylic paintings to oil paintings done in a similar period of time. Yes. It was a seminal piece that she was writing saying, when we look at the acrylic paintings, these 30-year-old paintings, we're able to say the acrylics are holding up incredibly beautifully well. Since 87, I think, was our first paper that we wrote on the conservation of acrylic materials. Since then, we've published in major conservation journals dealing with the conservation and the protection of acrylic. The company is recognized as a contributor to the world of information that's out there on how this material will work and last. But those of us who love the paint, love golden paints, Mm -hmm. we know that it will last. It's made by people who really care about what they're doing. We still are sending you new things to take a look at. You're welcome to come visit in the studio, Mark, when you have time. I'd love to see what what you're doing. Ron, it'd be great to visit also to uh, see your son Noah's work as well. I know he's a very talented painter. Uh, Noah lately has been using acrylic again. He, he's been an oil painter, and he's been using acrylic in recent times. His paintings are amazing. I do want to talk about the move upstate. Sure. The irony of life, yes? We're talking 2012. Yeah, I got invited. Now, you know, I, I was teaching at SVA, and then I was teaching at the Art Students League. Me, college dropout. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I loved it. You know, never make anything of yourself, right? Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> I got invited out of the blue to have a show, have a solo exhibition at the High School of Art and Design. Huh? What? And this is, we're talking October 2012. I, I probably got the invite around August to have an, a one-man show. Mm-hmm. I called them. Why? Huh? Well, you were one of the first people to ever come to this school, Ronnie. We're moving out of the building to a new building on 56th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. Mm -hmm. And as celebratory for the new building, we'd like you to have an exhibition in our gallery. I agreed to do the show. And I wrote a long essay. I called the show Where It All Began, which is all about some of the stuff we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And we we did an exhibition. Will, my assistant, and, and Noah helped me hang the the exhibition. We put it up in October of 2012. We did an opening. A lot of my friends came. Haller came, his wife. Jenny's uncle came. The amazing Al Jaffe, who Mm. retired this year at the age of 99. Incredible. You know, after the opening, there was a, a nearby Italian restaurant. And Matthew and Noah and their family and Jenny and me and some close friends 
we all went to the restaurant. And Matthew was about to take a trip. And I told him, there's this terrible storm coming. Maybe you should cancel your trip. I guess one of my friends, Irene, was staying with Jenny and I on Desprosa Street. And so that must have been October 28th, because the next day on October 29th, Hurricane Sandy hit. Hmm. And so I did a show called Where It All Began, and there it was the day it ended. Right. And we got inundated. At nine o'clock that night, my upstairs neighbors all evacuated. And Jenny, Irene, and myself, we stayed in, on the ground floor with my cats and my turtle. We lived on the second floor in the studio on the ground floor. By nine o'clock that night, there was three feet of water in the studio. So the entire basement was totally flooded. Totally flooded. We look out the window and the entire street, cars are underwater. We, we didn't really know what to do. My upstairs neighbor had left their doors open. We took the cats, put them in a carrier, and we went up to the top floor. And we saw all the lights come out. Everything went dark. The kids called us in the morning. The, the water actually went out of my studio by a couple hours when the tide went out. Mm -hmm. The water was in the basement, but it went out of the studio. But everything had gotten wet. You know, to make a long story short, it changed our lives. Mm -hmm. And Noah drove downtown. Uh, he insisted that we stay with him. Next day, we drove down. I ran into my landlord on the street, and I told him that the third floor in the building was empty. So the guy gave me the keys to the third floor, which was really extraordinary. We began to carry things from studio on the ground floor up to the third floor to let they were soaking to let them dry and for the next several weeks we began to try to mitigate the damage on now there's a, a supply store in brooklyn mm -hmm. that the next day noah took me to and we bought all this stuff that would help us with the paperwork mm -hmm. but i bought like hundreds of sheets of paper that we could put my drawings in between to try to mitigate the, the mold. And we did that with a lot of my files. I mean, I, it was incredible that Noah knew what we should do. We began to daily work on the work in the studio. And he got the number of this conservatory. He called the guy and he told him about his dad down in Tribeca. And this guy's name was David Goist. He was from North Carolina, great conservator. And he agreed to meet us at the building. And the landlord decided to change the locks and lock us out. Because the city put a red sticker on the door saying that the basement is dangerous. We pressured the landlord to get the electricity turned on. And I think by probably by early December, they had done that. Now, Noah had a studio in Industry City in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And he came and we put 30 paintings, stretch paintings into his truck mm -hmm. and drove him out to Noah's studio because we couldn't move. My studio was so full of stuff. Right. We had to get some of the stuff, even though they were wet, we had to get them out just so we could figure out what to do next. I had two truckloads we put out at Noah's. I was afraid of hurting Noah's work. 
because my wet paintings, we didn't know. Concerned with mold. and If they were moldy, if they could hurt his stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went out to Industry City. Noah introduced me to his landlord. And I rented a studio that was two doors down from Noah's. Plus, we had all these big rolled up paintings that we needed to roll out. Noah calls this guy, David Goist. He agrees to meet us at the building. At this point, we have a lawyer. The lawyer gets a judge to order them to allow us to bring this conservator into the building. So David Goyce came in. He saw what Noah had done. And essentially, he said, you're doing everything right. Mm -hmm. Noah and Kate, my monitor at the league, rented a van. They put a van load of my work and brought it out to Brooklyn and carried it up the stairs to the third floor. Mm -hmm. Then they did it again, and they did it again, and they did it again, night after night after night, until the entire third floor was emptied of work. And I remember being told these American international conservators, the headquarters, it turned out, was the entire second floor in Industry City, in Sunset Park, Mm -hmm. in the same building that Noah's studio was in. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Noah's studio was on the third floor and we were the first person they were willing to look at wow. Wow. it was a godsend what's a great story right? so when did you start planning the new studio eventually Jenny convinced me that the building wasn't coming back mm-hmm. the landlord didn't want it to come back and we were fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting in the courts we decided to settle the case with the landlord I had a show in Santa Fe in 2013. I had a lot of paintings in Santa Fe, and we did a show. Matthew had heard about this place called New Windsor, New York. Sure. And I saw this place, this house, and I needed to find a place that I could build a studio. Mm -hmm. If it didn't exist already, I needed to build a studio. And the people from the town said, no problem. So tell me, what was it like moving out of the city after being there for over 40 years? Well, my entire life, I was born and raised in the city. Mm, right. So it was quite traumatic. I mean, I really wanted to stay in Tribeca. But I it was convinced, and Jenny convinced me that it was impossible. We moved to New Windsor. I bought the house in April of 2014. I bought this place only after Bill Pettit said okay. <laughs> I had him come up with me and look. And he said, okay. we, all, we all need Bill Pettit for us to move anyplace. Well, and then when, yeah. did you, when did you finish the studio? In January of 2015. Right. Been here ever since. Good. Well, I look forward to being there and uh, toasting with you at the studio, Ronnie. Well, Ronnie, thank you. This has been just great to uh, have you share a great story. So thank you. Matthew Lanfield, Ronnie's son, has written a beautiful piece on the family's home and life in Tribeca. So please check out mattlanfield.com. And finally, coming right up this November 14th, you can see Ronnie's work in person at the Finlay Gallery at their new location on 32 East 57th Street. I'll be masked, but I'll be there to help celebrate. Come join me.